All right, good morning. Good to see all of you. So uh, I, I don't want to um, bury the lead here from these passages that we've looked at. Here's the main point. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, is at minimum the most interesting person who has ever lived. And that's if you believe nothing about his divinity or if you are even unconvinced on his historical veracity. Who was he? When did he live? All of those things. You still have to wrestle with his influence in the world today and for the last 2,000 years. Because whoever or whatever Jesus was, it was like a boulder dropped into a pond and we still feel the ripples of what he did now. And is that an overstatement? I don't think so because uh, I'm not great at math. The only way that I was able to calculate that it was roughly 2,000 years ago that Jesus was here on the planet is because conveniently our calendar system counts back to his supposed birth. Uh, What's actually funny is that largely the calendar system that we used until the 1500s was devised by Julius Caesar about what now we call 45 BC. And Julius Caesar was called the Julian calendar. That was in place for much of the Western world until the 1500s. But it was becoming increasingly problematic because that calendar was actually off by 11 minutes a year. And what that meant was that by the 1500s, it was off by 13 days which made it really difficult to date certain things. You'd actually have to date certain things and then do a calculation and say minus 13 days, and that's actually how we would date it now. So Pope Gregory in the 1500s says, I'm not, uh, we need to do something to fix this. This doesn't really work, and it's not gonna bode well because time keeps passing. So with every, every year, we're getting further off. So he came up with what's now the Gregorian calendar, which counts to, uh, again, Christ's assumed birth. Which is, is funny because that means that 1,500 years after they walked the planet, Jesus was still beating Julius Caesar in a popularity contest uh, in the foundation of the new calendar that we use to count. But that's not, it's not just calendars though, right? Because that's just trivia. His impact is felt in history even by some of the other uh, lesser but still great men who helped themselves make history. Uh, Albert Einstein. What did Einstein say? I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful. No man can read the gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. That was Einstein. What did H.G. Wells say? H.G. Wells, atheist, author of The Time Machine, Island of Dr. Moreau, Invisible Man, among other books. H.G. Wells said, I am a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Vincent van Gogh, 
who doesn't hear in stereo anymore. He said, Christ alone of all the philosophers, magicians, etc., has affirmed eternal life as the most important certainty, the infinity of time, the futility of death, the necessity and purpose of serenity and devotion. He lives serenely. As an artist greater than all other artists, scorning marble and clay and paint, working in the living flesh. In other words, this peerless artist, scarcely conceivable with the blunt instrument of our modern, nervous, and obtuse brains, made neither statues, nor paintings, nor books. He maintained, in no uncertain terms, that he made living men, immortals. So who Jesus is matters. In fact, to the degree that we are convinced that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and did what he is said to have done, that one truth begins to take precedence over all the other truths in our lives. It is not trivial, though we trivialize it daily. And I said that at minimum, Jesus is the most interesting man in history. That's true but it isn't all that we believe about him though, right? Our passage today introduces us to two people who are willing to debase themselves at the mere chance to see him. So what do we have today, what we'll study? We have some of Jesus's final acts of evangelism. He is going to Jerusalem for the final time. We have his last public miracle in the Gospel of Luke today in the healing of this blind man. Save for one last miracle. His last miracle is a doozy, and we'll get to it at the end. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Lord, be here now in our midst, we ask. Uh, We ask you to come here because uh, we cannot merely summon you, you must come to us, and I pray that uh, you would Uh, hear that you would magnify our hearts so that we could magnify you. That these songs that we sing that are true and that they're good, uh, Lord, we know that just us singing the words still falls so short of the glory that you deserve. Um, But even in your mercy, you still consent to let us try to sing what is true about you. So, be in our midst. And I ask that you pray for yourselves. Pray that the Lord would soften your heart, that he would have you hear what he would want you to hear. And pray for me. Pray that uh, my words uh, would be true that I would speak well of the Lord, speak truthfully of the Lord. Lord, we love you and we trust you to be good. Uh, Use this time, meet us here, and it's in Christ's name, amen. So we're gonna break today's sermon into four chunks. Uh, The first being sight restored, salvation gained, prize resistance, and Christ's glory. So for the first section of our passage, what is the scene? The scene is, as he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging, and hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. 
Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told them. So last week actually ended up, ended somewhat cryptically, right? Pastor Lawson preached through uh, about the rich young ruler and then ends with Jesus talking to his disciples, a prediction of his impending torture, death, and resurrection. And the disciples, it said, didn't understand any of it. Which if you've ever been in a conversation where someone says something that you just don't quite make out, but you nod and smile anyway, hoping that they won't ask you what they just said, you kind of know where the disciples are. They go, great, Jesus, what did you say? Uh, They didn't miss all of it though, because he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. And now in this passage, they are going to Jerusalem. Uh, It's actually what we're told. They're actually headed there for Passover. And they're headed that way via a road that leads through Jericho. That's an east to west journey, to give you an idea. It means that they've got 22 miles ahead of them and about 3,000 feet to climb in elevation. Uh, Jericho itself is at the base of a ridge of mountains. It's a literal oasis in the desert. It's fed by springs from underground. That's why Jericho was able to be such a large and influential city. Um, But Jerusalem is actually at the top of Mount Zion, along a ridge of mountains. So they have to climb up to Jerusalem. This is a well-used road. Uh, Beyond Jesus' own group, his own immediate family and disciples and all the people that are traveling with him, there's probably at least a good smattering of other Jews that are traveling towards Jerusalem for the same reason, to celebrate Passover at Jerusalem. Despite this, so we know that this is a well-used road, it's maintained, uh, there's an extra bit of commotion going on. There's enough energy in the air that a blind man who is sitting by the side of the road has to ask people around him what all this noise is about. You know, I'm blind, I'm not deaf, what's going on? And he wasn't just sitting by the road, right? What was he doing by the side of the road? Begging. So we know he's begging by the side of the road. So he already exists in a state of complete dependence, right? No money, no means of work, likely not many friends. So you can imagine, you don't have to close your eyes, but you're begging on the side of the road and you live near Jericho. You know that your best bet at a little money is from these crowds passing by. And then all of a sudden you pick up a difference in the crowd the atmosphere has changed and all of the, you have to ask the people around you. You don't know where anybody is, but you have to ask, hey, what's going on? What's happening here? And somebody, somebody else who's just gathered to watch the commotion tells him that Jesus from Nazareth is nearby, somewhere in that crowd of people. It's all blackness to you, but you know that Jesus is nearby, somewhere in that crowd of people. We don't know how, but somehow Jesus' reputation has preceded him into Jericho. Because this blind man, immediately he starts calling out into the air because he has no idea where Jesus is. He starts calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Screams it. Those words, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me are the closest thing we've got to magic words, this side of fairy tales. Because this man is living in literal darkness, begging strangers for money, 
And the moment he knows that Jesus might be somewhere close to him, somewhere in the vicinity of his voice, he begins screaming for him and for a drop of mercy. There's more too, because notice the crowds around him, they tell him Jesus of Nazareth is here. Well, what's of Nazareth mean? That's just a signifier. Jesus from around Nazareth is here. But this blind man doesn't call out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. No, he goes straight for the punchline. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, what does that mean? He's shouting out loud for everyone to hear that he believes Jesus is the proclaimed Messiah to come from the line of David, great King David of Israel. That was God's promise to David way back in the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel uh, chapter seven, this is God talking to King David. He says to David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know, we know from the gospels that Jesus is literally descended from David. But nobody was calling out, Joseph, son of David, have mercy on me. Because Joseph, even though he was in the lineage, Jesus, his earthly father, was clearly not the person who was going to assume the mantle of King David and come and have his throne established forever. No, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This blind man has both the faith and the eyes to see what others do not, which is that Jesus is not just a local celebrity. He's not just a faith healer. He is the heir apparent to the throne and the one that it was believed would establish God's kingdom forever. And so he calls for Jesus and the fervor of his calls causes the crowds around him to tell him to be quiet, right? Knock it off. You're embarrassing us. You're causing a scene. You know, I think we can, I can have some sympathy with that crowd, right? They're just trying to get a peek at celebrity and this man is just shamelessly shrieking. He's making it awkward. And so they tell him to be quiet. It doesn't work though, right? Because he calls out all the more. That's what it says. Calls out all the more. And their discouragement actually had the opposite effect. Made him more desperate. More quick to call out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in Matthew's account of the same story, just to give you an idea, the verb that he's using for shouting all the more, it's the same verb that you use for crying out in excruciating pain. Same verb that they use for women in childbirth. That's the level of fervor that this man is calling out for Jesus. He knows that in all likelihood, this is his one and only chance to interact with Jesus on this planet. If Jesus gets away this time, this man has no possible way of finding him again. He's not gonna follow him to Jerusalem. He's got no way to get there. So like a man 
like someone shipwrecked in the sea, going over the waves, who sees a plane off in the distance, he is making every effort to be seen because if it goes away, he has no recourse to find it again. He knows his desperation. So, Jesus actually calls out to the man. And we learn from uh, Mark's account that his name is Bartimaeus. The crowd actually turns to him and says, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling for you. You know, it, given the two accounts, it, it's almost hard not to read that sarcastically. Cheer up, Bartimaeus, he's calling for you now, way to go. Uh, this, then at that moment in Mark's account, it says, Bartimaeus gets up, throws his robe on the ground, walks towards Jesus. Robe that was probably the only thing that he had, probably the only thing he owned. Jesus looks at him, even though Bartimaeus doesn't know Jesus is looking at him. And he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? It is that great paradox of mercy that we have seen in this man, Jesus, that he stoops so low to take a blind beggar and then ask him that kind of question. What do you want me to do for you? This man serves no purpose to Jesus right now, right? And we know that Jesus has a monumental task in front of him. Jesus has a place to be, an appointed time to be there. And he stops in the middle of a crowd to talk to Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus' answer is simple. He wants his sight back. He wants to be able to see. And Jesus gives it to him immediately. Because of what? Because of his faith. But what faith? are we talking about? He's literally begging by the side of the road. He doesn't even know which direction to look, has no idea of knowing where Jesus really is. He has to ask somebody, what is the noise about? Uh, he has to be told Jesus is near. And those aren't a detriment to his faith. Those increase his faith because, because of this, he's the only one there. He's the only one screaming at the appropriate volume for the son of David to be walking through the streets because he understands his condition and he calls out to him. He is the only one in the crowd that is seeing. And because of this, because of his desperation, likely one of the first things he sees is the face of Jesus, son of David, looking at him after his faith has immediately made him well. You can come along too, Bartimaeus. Join the party. And what do we hear? Everyone there gives praise to God for what they have seen. And this man's embarrassment has been turned into glory because of what Christ has done. And that's Jesus' last healing in the Gospel of Luke that we see. But he has some more work to do. We'll move on to this next section, salvation gained. Uh, he entered through Jericho and was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus who was the chief tax collector and he was rich and he was trying to see who Jesus was but be, he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man. So the train keeps right on rolling. Uh, we're no longer approaching Jericho now. So this is right after, we're not approaching it, we're in the middle of it. Jesus is still walking. You have to imagine that rumors are spreading because of what has just happened, right? And you know that the crowd is following right along with him. 
There's now a large crowd passing through the city and we're introduced to a man named Zacchaeus and I'm not gonna sing the song and we're not gonna sing the song this morning. Uh, Zacchaeus is one of those people I personally don't have a lot of empathy for. Uh, Not because he's a tax collector, but because he's short. Uh, It has never been a problem for me. Uh, I'm about a foot taller than my wife, Christina, and occasionally I get to serve her by getting anything off the shelf that's more than six feet from the ground. And if I have the opportunity, I will look at her while I'm taking it down and I will say, I don't even understand how you live your life. (laughs) If you hadn't married me and you married some shorty, would you have to walk around on each other's shoulders just to go through your day-to-day functions? Would you have to carry a step stool in your purse? Randy Newman has a great song called Short People. Uh, They've got little baby legs, they stand so low you have to pick them up just to say hello. Uh, it'd be a much better song than the one we sing about Zacchaeus. I won't tell you what the chorus is. You can look it up. It's a little mean. Uh, but I do actually have some empathy for Zacchaeus. Because, but I'll tell you what. The crowd he's around doesn't. They, don't care, they likely don't care for Zacchaeus at all. Uh, and that has nothing to do with his height. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And not only that, he was a chief tax collector, which is that's the only time we hear that phrase in any of the gospels, a chief tax collector. So not just a regular one, he is the boss. The other tax collectors in the area work for him. What we know about Zacchaeus is that he is Jewish, son of Abraham, has a Hebrew name. What we know about Israel is that it's currently a Roman-occupied territory. So the Romans are in charge. So a tax collector, as you've probably heard, a tax collector is somebody levying taxes on behalf of the Romans. Zacchaeus' position in the crowd is that of a turncoat, a traitor, someone who has betrayed his countrymen to work for the Romans while the Romans are wrongfully occupying Israel. And Zacchaeus has not just done this kind of okay, he has become rich by it because there's a million ways to skim off the top when you're Zacchaeus. He is full sheriff of Nottingham, if you've got a Robin Hood reference in you. They understand that this is the guy that comes around looking for money for the Romans and then also a good portion of money for himself. Additionally, what that means though, is that Zacchaeus actually has a few things in common with Bartimaeus that we probably wouldn't have seen because he's a social outcast also. It's not quite the same, it's by choice but we can bet he does not have many friends on the streets of Jericho. The crowd considers him not just a nuisance, but a crook, sinful man. No one's gonna make a way for Zacchaeus. No one cares if he can see. So Zacchaeus takes matters into his own hands. He climbs up a sycamore tree, which would have been present in Jericho uh, at that time. Like I mentioned, Jericho is a bit of an oasis. It actually had a um, good batch of of vegetation, of crops. And so we've got an image. This is a sycamore tree in modern Jericho. Still exists. You can take out sort of the kind of wrought iron fence there. But if you take that out, you can imagine something that you very well might have seen in Jericho 2,000 years ago. Uh, In fact, in Jericho today, 
they have what they call the Zacchaeus tree. It's a tourist location, which is a tree that dates probably roughly to at least 2,000 years back. Uh, and that is at a major intersection in the road in modern Jericho that you can come see, and they claim that this is the tree that Zacchaeus climbed. Now, do we really know if it is? No, we don't know if it is, but it's fun to imagine. Um, it's just sort of the power of this story. They say that this is probably the same tree that Zacchaeus climbed. So uh, Zacchaeus, public official Zacchaeus, grown man Zacchaeus, even though his growing stopped a little shorter than he probably would have liked, climbs up in a tree in order to see Jesus passing by, which surely would have looked juvenile. Uh, it lo- would have looked below his station in life. He is, after all, a public official. Uh, you know, it'd be similar if we're going outside, it's our church, it's our standard church Easter egg hunt. All the kids are running around. And then we see, just because he's right here, we see Ben Grimmie climb up in a tree just to get a better look at all the kids as they're climbing around. And I would say, Ben, come on, you're a Marine, man, get down. Like, you're, 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 you're above this, man. But uh, uh, I'll just lift you up. Um, the uh, Zacchaeus gets up, he climbs, and however it looked, however silly it looked, Zacchaeus is willing to take the gamble that seeing Jesus is more important than how he was going to be perceived. So he climbed up, climbed up to get a good look. Uh, that's an act of faith for Zacchaeus, which sounds funny because we think of act of faith only in terms of really big, you know, I'm gonna... Uh, necessarily sell my house and move or something like that. Acts of faith are all kinds of things like this. Anytime that we're willing to put ourselves aside for an an idea of understanding who God is more, being more like him. Uh, It comes in different forms. If you were to go outside and climb a tree right now, I don't know if we'd call it an act of faith uh, without any specific context, Uh, but that doesn't mean... uh, that acts of, faith, acts of faith can't be small, you know? Your act of faith could be simple. An act of faith could be a small form like you're an, actual, you're an actual believer, you're married. An act of faith could be looking at your spouse and saying, I think we should pray together. And then actually doing it. Because Loss and I have talked before, for whatever reason, there's no one in the world harder to pray consistently with than your husband or your wife. Your act of faith might be putting your own feelings of awkwardness aside and going to talk to someone at a grocery store, maybe try and bring them to church. There are people in here today that have done that and there are people that are here today because somebody has done that. Small acts of faith, you, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from somebody. That's an act of faith too. It's an act of faith because it means that you're willing to be rejected potentially to make right what you have wronged. And maybe more importantly, it's admitting that you even have the capability of wrongdoing, which we often like to live our lives ignorant of that fact. It says that we value the commands of scripture more than we value our own ego for at least a moment. And when we do things like this, when we believers act in these small things where we go, I think, I think this is what the Lord is asking of me. I think this is what's gonna give me a better view of the Lord. We often find, like Zacchaeus found here, that he came to get a better look at the Lord and then that the Lord was looking at him up in that tree. Get down from there, Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your place. Hurry up, no time like the present. He doesn't even just say, I'm coming to your place. He says, it's necessary that I come to your place. I've gotta go to your place. 
somewhere in Jesus's, you know, God mind, it is appointed Zacchaeus, we've gotta go, we've got work to do. So Zacchaeus gets down from that tree, he gets down from that tree with two adjectives, quickly and joyfully. And this situation has escalated rapidly uh, because Zacchaeus probably didn't count on that result when he climbed up in that tree. He just wanted to get a look at Jesus. Jesus looks at him, says, get down, I'm coming to your house. And his response, both how quickly he responds and also how joyfully he responds, tell you he has already formed an opinion on who Jesus is. Like he doesn't think that Jesus is a just celebrity figure, local teacher, interesting guy. It means that he thinks that Jesus carries with him some kind of authority, some kind of weight. And why do we know this? Because he volunteers upon meeting with Jesus. He says, Jesus, I will give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've taken anything from someone wrongfully, I will pay it back fourfold. So if Zacchaeus borrowed 25 bucks from you last week, stole 25 bucks from you last week, it means he's coming back this week with 100 for you and an apology. Again, Jesus didn't ask that. Zacchaeus, in response to Jesus, volunteers it. Maybe this will show him. I think he matters more than these things. And we've, you know, we've got to compare that to the rich young ruler passage, right? Because the rich young ruler, you know, if, if anything, you're thinking, well, hold on. This guy was a moral man, you know, we agree he probably didn't keep the law perfectly. We know he didn't keep the law perfectly, but it's probably fair to say that he kept the law better than most because Jesus doesn't challenge him on it. But when, Jesus, when he asks Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, he presses right into the heart of it and says, give up everything that you have and then come follow me. And we're told that that man walked away sorrowful because he didn't like those terms. Given the choice between the two, he would rather keep what he had than follow Jesus. But Jesus didn't even give him a chance to negotiate because clearly here, you've got Zacchaeus, not a good man, an extortionist, a thief, a traitor, and Zacchaeus doesn't even go. He says, I'll give up half of everything. Well, why, why does Jesus accept half from this bad man but then reject all from like a practicing Jew that, that wants to follow along with them. You, I mean, why didn't Jesus negotiate with him? You don't get to negotiate with Jesus because this passage, it's, it's about money and the Rishon Yulah passage, it's about money, but it's not about money, really. Jesus was diagnosing a heart problem in that instance with that man. He didn't even know he had it. Given the choice between Christ and stuff, the rich young ruler wanted stuff. Yet Zacchaeus here already has given Christ his heart. He doesn't have anything to gain from this. He also is rich, he also has things, but his deciding factor was his heart, not his money. Once the heart's on the table, once you give Jesus that, the money is just details. How do you want me to spend it, Lord? What is wise? What is good? Do you have any doubt that if Jesus said, sell all you have and follow me, that Zacchaeus wouldn't have just said, okay, sure. If that's what it is, sure. 
Again, like he, he, he offered half just as a voluntary thing and Jesus says, great, because Jesus isn't seeking to remove that idol in Zacchaeus' life. Jesus, is just, Jesus knows Zacchaeus is bought in. He's all in, he agrees. And he says, Jesus, whatever you say, I'll do it. And so Jesus says, all right, salvation has come to your house. Because somehow, not because Jesus or Zacchaeus has purchased it, whereas the other man was unwilling to pay that price. No, salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house because Zacchaeus has already settled that Jesus Christ is the most important person he will ever know. And whatever happens with his money after that is of little to no consequence. That's a challenge though, because our final point, pride's resistance, talks about why those things are so hard. So we're gonna talk about kind of us and then fittingly we're gonna end with Jesus. Both Bartimaeus, the blind man, and Zacchaeus, the tax collector, have this in common, right? This is what they have in common. When they knew Jesus was near, they made the importance of seeing him as the most pressing matter in their life. And they did so at the expense of propriety, of normalcy and of reputation. Both men, likewise, we can also tell they've already formed opinions about Jesus in their hearts and minds before they interacted with him. They weren't coming to form their opinion on him. They weren't coming to see what he was all about. They determined, no, I've got, I think I've got an idea who this guy is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue him. Bartimaeus already believed that he was the Messiah coming to redeem his people. Zacchaeus already believes that Christ's importance was so great that he was willing to offer up his own wealth at a moment's notice just because he thought it might be something that would make Jesus happy. And because they placed Jesus first, all other things fell in place behind him. But there's the other character in this story which can be kind of approximated as the crowds that are present. In both stories, the crowds present when Bartimaeus is yelling, begging for mercy, and the crowds present when Zacchaeus is shown mercy by Jesus. And I think they're honestly a warning to us because I think this is the easiest place for us to find ourselves culturally and spiritually. So what are some of the characteristics of the crowds themselves? I've narrowed it down to four, there's probably more. But among them, they were more concerned with the passive observation of Jesus than a meaningful interaction with him. They wanted to see him, they were curious about him, but that was, that was most of it. They were unconcerned with the real needs of people around them and even annoyed by those real needs of people around them. You know, when you see that in the crowd, Bartimaeus is yelling out. Now, whatever you believe about Jesus, the rumor has spread that he is a faith healer of some kind. At minimum, he's a faith healer. He's done this before. But no one in the crowd was connecting the dots that maybe it might be a good idea to try and make these two meet. Maybe we should go ahead and just take Bartimaeus to Jesus and say, here, Jesus, here's this blind man. But they weren't really concerned about Bartimaeus. They wanted, they wanted Jesus to pass by. They could have a t story they could tell their kids. I was here when I saw him. He walked on by and man, it was awesome. Also, there's a guy crying out and yelling for him, but that's not a big deal. Uh, 
What else? They were spiteful towards others that received mercy, especially if they felt that that mercy was undeserved. So when they see Jesus go to Zacchaeus's house, they are not happy that a man of great repute has gone to a man of great sin. They are more worried that Jesus will be sullied by Zacchaeus than that Zacchaeus will be made whole by Jesus. So they're angry. I was here too. And I'm tall enough I didn't have to climb up in some stupid tree. Why didn't he, inv- why didn't he come to my house for lunch? Why was it necessary that he had to go to Zacchaeus's house? And last, they had an idea of Jesus's significance. He's important. But they didn't have a fully formed understanding of who he was. He is not a man that you should let go idly by in a street, even just to get a glimpse of him and then just say, that was it, that's all I needed. I'd go so far as to say that these statements more or less represent the normal state of mind for most people, most of the time. Anyone will gather around to see someone famous. A crowd will form even if you don't know why the crowd is forming. You'll just go join the back of it and say, what are we doing here? Those crowds are not a a signifier of any real understanding of what's going on. To be interested in Jesus is great, but ultimately it isn't enough. Because to be standing on the side of the road, asking a blind man to keep quiet so that he doesn't embarrass himself or you when Jesus is near shows that we don't understand who Jesus is. A better reaction, maybe, a a sample of a potential better reaction might be what we see in Luke chapter five, which we probably read 18 years ago now. We've been in Luke for so long. But Luke chapter five, verses 17 through 20. On one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. So this is back when the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees was not quite as tense as it is now. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. But just then some men came, carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him, him being Jesus. But since they couldn't find a way, they, had to bring it, they couldn't find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on a roof and lowered him in on a stretcher through the roof tiles in the middle of the crowd before Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said, friends, your sins are forgiven. What else does he say after that? He also looks at them and says, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? And then he tells the man, get up and walk. And he does. He calls that faith because that was faith of friends, maybe acquaintances of this paralyzed man saying, there's Jesus over there. Not only is he surrounded by a crowd of people such that we can't force our way through if we wanted to, we're just gonna have, to, we're gonna have to find a way through the roof or something. So we'll go climb up on the roof. We'll lower you down through some kind of pulley system. And then maybe you'll just be close enough to him or he'll just, he'll just do something. Maybe you'll just get healed. I don't know. But either way, I know that he means something. Something like that might be closer to what the crowd should have done with this blind man. Get him to Jesus, get him to Jesus. He doesn't have to be a blind beggar anymore. Jesus is right there. At least give him the chance to say yes or no. Likewise, when the crowd saw that Jesus was going to stay with Zacchaeus, they don't rejoice 
that God shows mercy even to great sinners. They grumble that he pays any attention to them at all. Our hearts only believe these things because if we, because we think that we are okay or that our situation is somehow less desperate than Bartimaeus's or Zacchaeus's. We have been fooled into thinking that we are somehow self-made and that we don't have a great need for Christ's salvation, which makes it so that Christ might pass a hair's breadth in front of us. But pride stops us from opening our mouth and crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Instead we say, no thanks Jesus. I'll catch you the next time you're in Jericho though. Next time you come around. Jesus isn't coming back to Jericho. Church, if Jesus hadn't healed Bartimaeus that day outside Jericho, Bartimaeus would have eventually been healed when he saw the Lord in glory because he believed the truth about who Jesus was. But there were many there that day and every day that see Jesus but remain blind. Brings us to our last point though, which is Christ's glory. When you know who Jesus is and you understand his significance, physical ailments like blindness can even become tools for which you can greater see him. When you know your desperation, when you know your need, Jesus is clearer because he is the meter of those needs. Fanny Crosby, who famously wrote over 8,000 hymns, some of which we still sing here, was famously born blind. She wrote them blind. But she's quoted as saying, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be the face of my savior. Jesus demands that we not keep him at the arm's length, passive observation, mild approval relationship. This is strong. That way ends in death. Jesus was God or he wasn't. It is intellectually inconsistent to believe anything else about him. If he wasn't, you've got a lot of accounts to settle before the end of your life. Who you are, why you matter, what this is. If he was God, not, a, not simply a fascinating historical figure, then we can join along the crowd outside of Jericho praising God because he healed Bartimaeus. Because Bartimaeus' miracle becomes our miracle. It's a further validation not only of Christ's power, but also his kindness, his humility, his attention to the outcast, his mercy. Like them, we get to give God glory on account of it because of what he has done. We have to come to understand that who Jesus is matters more than who I am. 
if Jesus is God in my life, well, man, who Dale Guger is is somehow subservient to that. Who I am, Jesus matters more than who I am, but also who I am only matters because of who Jesus is. We have to come to understand that, that Jesus doesn't leave any other options to us. He has come to seek and save the lost. He said it himself. And I told you at the beginning, Jesus has one more miracle to perform in Luke. He is headed to Jerusalem with that one miracle in mind. And it is, it is his grand finale of his time on earth. See, Jesus is ascending the mountain from Jericho in this passage. And he will not stop until there's a cross placed upon the mountain and until he is placed upon that cross. And what happens after that? You know that story. What you believe about it will color everything else for the rest of your life. If the stone rolled away from the tomb, then Jesus is Lord. And try as death might, it could not master him. And because of that, he continues today to gather people to himself. If you're curious about who Jesus is, that is great. But don't stop there. Because when you see him clearly, everything else comes into focus. Lastly, from Isaiah chapter 29, written roughly 600 years before Jesus walked this road from Jericho, Jerusalem. Isn't it true that in just a little while, Lebanon will become an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest. And on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a document and out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray. There's often we are, we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. And I pray that our eyes that see you, you would continue to let them see more and more and more of you that you are always further up and further in, that we don't ever have you contained, but we must not ever believe that you are simply an interesting person. Lord, I pray for our hearts to see you new, to worship you, that we understand that if we know who you are, then we can sing, Christ be magnified. Be magnified in me. Whatever I'm going to be, whatever my life looks like, it looks like that because I want to serve you. I want to know who you are. So call people to yourself. We believe you still, you perform miracles still, Lord. Pray that you would turn hearts to know who you are. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.